Welcome back to School of Science Radio. I'm Gino Ganello, joined this week by uh, a few guests. Um, obviously, Matthew Chandler joining us again. Pete Reynolds making his second appearance uh, in the past couple weeks. And a new guest, not from Royal Blue Mercy's site, uh, but a senior staff writer for The Sportsman, L. Bretland. L, how's it going today? Yeah, really good. Uh, I think we'll all agree with what the season's over as well, to be honest. But it'll yeah. be uh, good to chat and dissect it all. Yeah, no, I think I think you're right with that one. And, and we'll get into it in a little bit. But Matthew, uh, Pete, how are you guys doing today? Everything going well? Just relieved, to be honest, you know, I think just kind of, especially because this season lasted nearly a year, it feels like eternity has gone for me. Kind of looking forward to next season, but then it's kind of that hope that kills you every year, doesn't it, with Everton, so. Seven weeks off is very appealing now. Seven <laughs> Everton yeah. three weeks, can't wait. Yeah, I saw somebody on Twitter today said something like, uh, you know, today's the first day without Everton. Enjoy it. <laughs> Use it wisely. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, we'll get into, uh, I guess, the off season in a little bit. But let's start with uh, the final match, Everton-Bournemouth. Uh, Bournemouth doing the double against us, 3-1. Um, there were two changes going into the, in, into the match. Keane in for Calvert-Lewin and Coleman in for Sidibe. It was a 4-2-3-1. L, uh, we'll start with you, and you guys can kind of take it from there. Uh, thoughts on the match uh, yesterday? Yeah, I thought it was um, just a really insipid display again. It, it seems that when the opposition have got more riding on it than Everton, I, I felt like because we knew Bournemouth were fighting relegation, it, it was another sort of get out of jail free card for the players. I thought that you know Bournemouth would be there; they'd be they'd be eager, and we were just in mid table. So it, it was. It was sort of summed up the season, really, that as soon as there's any pressure on from anywhere else, we just didn't turn up. Um, I was pleased for Moise Keane, getting his start and getting a goal. But again, it's just the frustration of the season that why is it taking game 38 that he's getting the start that, that he needs? You know, I would, have, I would have loved to have seen him start more in the first 10 games, considering the money we've spent on him, you know, the potential that he's got. Um, so really, it was just sort of a, a ninety minutes of of just summing up what's what's gone wrong this season, from down to the attitude of the players to how we've used them. Really, so yeah, it was <laughs> it wasn't a surprise. I think we can all agree that we got beat by Bournemouth six two on aggregate in the end as well. Um, it's just not good enough, is it, for the money that we've spent and the ambition that we we have? We are miles off. A pretty damning, uh, damning opinion, which I think many of us can agree with. Anything to to add to that, guys? Matt, Pete. Uh, I think um, I I agree. I think Moise scheme is probably the only kind of positive you can take from that. Um, and what's interesting is people, you know, probably rightly make the point that Keane hasn't really made much of an impact as, as a sub. But his last start before yesterday was the Newcastle game when he scored. So, and I actually think he looks much better fit to play as a lone striker than Dominic Calvert-Lewin does. I think, um, you know, Dominic Calvert-Lewin often, for whatever reason, seems to look a lot more isolated and seems more comfortable with Charleston alongside him. I think Moise Keane acquitted himself well yesterday. And aside from the goal, I just thought he was generally, you know, his, his link-up play with Theo Walcott was quite good as well down uh, down the right um, when he played him through, didn't he? Um but apart from that, I don't think you can 
I think the problem with some of these games are we're not really learning anything. We haven't really learned anything new about Everton, really. I, can't, I mean, Carl Antolte might because, you know, he hasn't been around as long as us to watch Everton. But, you know, again, it's just another game where, like El said, you know, the opposition has more to play for. Everton can't rise to the, rise to the occasion, match their intensity, their motivation. And we just came up short. And I think the fact that he's, he called them out after the Wolves game, and apart from a decent performance against Sheffield United, nothing much has changed. I think it kind of tells you everything you need to know about the squad that he's got. Yeah, I think as well, it was just a carbon copy of the Saints match in many ways, apart from that we didn't have a bit of luck, really. I'm not saying we deserved any luck, but we nicked a point against Southampton and that first half, pretty much minute for minute, like the way Bournemouth pressed us, and we just don't have any answers for it if any team shows anything interesting. We're like playing out from the back, Bournemouth are pushing like four or five players up the field, uh, trying to win the ball back and succeed in a lot of time, but we're not recognising that like, there's five players that far forward. There's going to be so much space in behind them and we're not going, oh, should we just play a little ball over the top and try and break on them? And it's just the same mistakes over and over again, not just this season, for like years. Yeah, I, and Pete, if you want to dive into kind of what you discussed in your, your five telling stats and we can go from there, obviously some pretty damning uh, stats in here as well. You know, to begin, Everton dispossessed, dispossessed 16 times in their own half, um, you know, a conservative play, uh, you know, if you want to dive in any of that and talk about kind of what you wrote about. Um, so, you know, kind of break this down a little bit as well. Yeah. Oh, well, I think the key thing is we're just so slow and pedestrian on the ball. Like there's no urgency in our play. We move, even if we do move the ball into the other half, a lot of the time we're kind of putting our foot back, uh, putting our foot on the ball, having a look around and then kind of play it into the middle or playing it back again allowing the other team to just get so many players behind the ball, which makes it hard to break them down then. We're wasting, like, even those opportunities that we get, even when they're rare, we're just too slow. Um, and, yeah, when, I think the, we're lacking, like, I mean, tactical intelligence during the game. Like, as I said before, um, if a team's pressing us that high, why are we still playing it around the back and, like, really putting ourselves under so much pressure? We just need a couple of vertical passes and we're going to break them down very quickly. Yeah, I mean, I think, it, like we've all said, kind of the, the problem with Everton, we, we, it keeps rising again and again, is, you know, that creative intelligence. And, and we see it every game. And again, this one was another example of that. Matthew, you mentioned Moyes Keane, and I'd like to hear Pete and, and Elle's opinion on him. But I think you're right on the, the lone striker situation, because it feels like his skill set might, might, he just has more in the bag, I feel like. And if we let him play and let him you know, get that experience, it might um, benefit us and it might be better than Dominic Calvert-Lewin, even though, uh, you know, despite the fact that Calvert-Lewin didn't score in the, since the restart, he did have a pretty good season overall after um, some rough finishing appearances uh, in prior seasons. The, yeah, yeah, sorry. No, no, yeah, no. Either you guys, any guys uh, want to talk maybe about Moise Keane and what, you know, why he might be better in that that role or what you guys see from him? Yeah, so uh, for me, the big difference yesterday was with Moise Keane is the fact that he's starting, it takes a little bit of pressure off him in terms of, so when he's coming off the bench and he's got 10, 20 minutes to impress, he just looks desperate. Like he's trying to make a big impression. He's doing, he's overcomplicating everything and he's just not relaxed on the ball. He's not making smart runs. He's just desperate. And with yesterday, 
improvement was vast, like really vast. He showed us quality, he showed us strength, he showed us like good running. It's just a different player, really. And I think he's a player that maybe you can use him from the bench in the future, but you need to kind of let, let him settle it down a bit, give him a bit more confidence and kind of, so he's not so desperate to show what he's about and trying to make that impression, I think. Yeah, I think for me as well, that the forwards, it goes back to the midfield as well, that whether you play Calvert-Lewin and Richarlison as a two up top, it means that you've then got two central midfielders. And Gomez, Davis and Sigurdsson need to be in a three, I think. But then as well, if you play Keane up front on his own, uh, Sigurdsson isn't really a runner that would run beyond him. Gomez, because of he's probably out of the three, the most deep lying, the one that can probably put in more tackles. Now, when Tom Davis first came through, I thought he would be that guy to be more box-to-box. But <laughs> for whatever reason, he, he's not doing that. So it's the, the forwards, I think, can work if we can get midfielders that, that can run on, that can get involved in the attack and play. Because at the moment, the, the, the men in the middle, they're not taking responsibility on the ball. They're not, they're not taking a chance, basically. As soon as they see a sideways or backwards pass, they're taking it. And, you know, it... it it's important to keep the ball, but as, as Peter alluded to before, if you're just going to keep the ball, keep the ball, the opposition are going to are going to get it back at some point and you've not made any progress. So for me, I think Keane Richarlison and Calvert-Lewin can be a really good trio of attackers. I don't necessarily think you need to sign another, another attacker next season. I think Keane hopefully can have much more game time, but for me, it's, it, it's midfield is harming the whole functionality of the team basically it, it's it, we're not get you know we're, we're losing 10 20 yards i think in the play of if we could get someone like like Hoiberg, for example for Southampton, if he could be a bit more of a tackler i think you'll see gomez get 10 or 20 yards up the pitch and then he can play his through balls then he can get luca dean he can get coleman more involved with the wing back so at the moment i feel like the center of the pitch you know we could have messi and ronaldo up front the centre of the pitch is just killing us at the moment, I think. Yeah, and I feel like we, we talk about this, Pete and Matthew and I have talked about this before, but I think what you're saying also is, um, you know, if you look back, Gomez, Gomez's best games were when Ghana was next to him. And I feel like you're right, you know, we need that type of, and we've talked about this too, we need that type of midfielder there uh, to, to kind of allow him to do what he does best. Um, and right now he's not able to do that because of the midfield selections that we have right now. So um, it, it's something that, you know, <laughs> I feel like we ask this question every year, it feels like, it was, at least for the past few years. Um, hopefully it will, um, you know, get solved this offseason with Ancelotti. It seems like he's very keen on, on making sure this quali- the quality of the squad improves. So we'll see if it actually happens this time. Uh, just, you know, I think, one of the most important things from this game is that it was Leighton Baines' final match um, in, in an Everton jersey. He's retiring now. Um, Al, we'll start with you. Just some words, I guess, on Baines and, you know, your opinions of him since he joined the club and, and you know, what he, he's meant to the club, I guess. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm nearly 30, so I've been going the match for 25 years now, and I'd say he's comfortably the best player that I've seen in my lifetime. Just, just for the consistency, really. Um, he always has a, a solid game. Um, going forward as well, I mean, there was a period when 
he was getting more assists than like some of the most creative midfielders in Europe. He was like he was right up there, and I think I think although there's been a lot of outpouring from Evertonians, I don't think it's really been big news in the in the in the football world really. Um, maybe because he is that bit older, maybe because he hasn't played as much in the last two years. But I'm quite surprised at how underrated he seems really. Although we all rate him very highly. It just seems that he's because Everton maybe haven't been that successful during his time, sort of hasn't been appreciated. But with Evertonians, I mean, we love him, and I think I think there's a definite case to say that he'd probably make our all-time team ever. Maybe definitely an argument. Um, but yeah, it's just that consistency, and I think I think what's nice as well is you know Everton are known as like a community club, and that and Baines is just a good guy as well. Um, so I think it goes a long way with our fans. Obviously, you need the talent, but I think just the fact that he was a nice guy uh, was good for us as well. I mean, some people might say that he was too nice, and maybe that hindered us at times. But I think, yeah, he's just been a really good servant for Everton. It's, it's just really sad that it's that it's had to come to an end now. Absolutely, Matthew. You wrote a uh, you wrote a, a very uh, good piece that I believe was re- released today on Baines. Just want to talk about that, what you wrote about, and kind of your opinions as well. Yeah, just, I just kind of, I'm, I'm kind of in the same boat as El, really, I think. Um, he's definitely the best best player I've seen at Odison, um in my lifetime. And I think, you know, I think the fact that he's a scouser and he's a boyhood Evertonian just maybe work in his favour, but also I think um, you know, he he just he's always delivered like it. I think El alluded to. I was trying to think of bad games that Baines has had, like particularly bad games. And there's not any really that over the years that kind of spring to mind as when he had, you know, a complete stinker or anything like that. Um, and even as he kind of what what kind of the last few years, you know, whenever we played this season, I thought he was one of our better players in pretty much every game. Um, and I think he showed himself to be a much better defender than a lot of people give him credit for. Because he's obviously kind of renowned for being this kind of flying, marauding full-back um, who has a, you know, a fantastic left foot. But actually, like I picked out the two draws with United as games when I think I thought Baines was like one of our best players and most solid players. Um, so, and it's kind of a rarity to, to be a fullback, I guess, in this era where you're so good going forward and yet so dependable as well going the other way. Um, and also, I mean, one of the reasons why I, lo- I, lo- I love Baines so much as well is that he just seems so much more interesting, I think, than, than other footballers certainly now. And whether whether that's the fault of the footballers themselves or their clubs, they seem kind of sanitised and, and bland sort of personality-wise. I don't know, but I just I, I quite like the fact he, he seems quite quirky and, and he's, you know, into photography, he's into his music, he, you know, I like the fact that he took those Everton fans in the car so friendly and he's outside the ice cream man after he beat Fulham and things like that. He just he feels like a, a like a real one-off, I guess. And um, and also, I think I don't think the fact that Everton fans weren't there yesterday will particularly bother him because I feel like I think I called it like a very on-brand farewell for Baines because I think you know to go out after a late substitute appearance behind in a behind closed doors game. It's kind of probably the way you would have wanted to go, I guess. Pete, anything to add to that? Yeah, he just kind of disappeared off of the sunset, hasn't he, really? <laughs> it's one of those players that you kind of feel like you'll never, ever hear from again. Like, he's just going to 
moves the countryside, you know, maybe join Tony a bit for a bit of fishing or something. Um, <laughs> but it was, it's, it's kind of sad today. Like it was just like it was like in more. I felt like I was in mourning. Like I think a lot of Everton fans kind of felt this. It was just like just something about his essence that was just really appealing. Like he's not a showy kind of player. You know, he's not like racing around in Ferraris and moaning and not get. He's not getting enough money. And he said like I always enjoyed that when he had that like an indie rock blog on the Everton website for a while. But well, that was kind of funny. Um, but. I, <laughs> On the good, on the positive side of it, we have got a really good left back who's so similar to Baines. It's actually kind of surreal in Dean. And then, so on the pitch, although we're going to miss him a bit, he's probably gone at the right time in terms of he's not played for too long and kind of ruined his legacy a little bit. So like his last start, when was it? Was it the United game just before the lockdown? He's probably a man of the match. He's, he's, he's fantastic. And he was probably unlucky not to keep his place in the team, really. But I think... Although sad, it's probably the right time for him to go. And hopefully he kind of stays in the backroom staff or something. Yeah, no, he's, uh, you know, I started watching Everton back in like 2009. Um, when I really started to get into sport and whatnot. Um, he was my first ever jersey that I ever got. Um, he was always, he was so good. You know, you remember those free kicks. You remember everything of, you know, if, feel like he had so many of those moments and even this year with Lester he had another one of those moments he always had the quality he always was interested he always was was he was just one of the the best players I was able to watch from over here in America um obviously because there was one I think one American tour that that Everton did and they only played in San Francisco or something like that um but he was just always so much fun to watch and and such a professional and I remember uh, a couple of days ago, I saw a tweet um, about a, uh, a quote that was in a book that, that Baines had made to Roy Keane when he was at Wigan. And he said, you know, uh, if Everton come calling, like I'm going, I'm an Evertonian, this is what I'm doing. And I think that that's like, it just really speaks to how much he cared about the club and he cared about the um, people at the club and the fans and, and just how everything played out. And, you know, I said it, I think in the, the group chat that we have, you know, it's a shame he, we can never get him, you know, a trophy because of all people, he, he's, he deserves it, you know, out, out of everything he's given to the club. So um, certainly disappointing to see him leave. And it's going to be hard, hard to replace his personality, his, his care at the club. But hopefully, um, hopefully he does stick around and, and we'll see how, how everything plays out in his retirement. Uh, just to end kind of, for those who didn't hear it, before we move on, I'll, I'll read the statement that he gave um, on the club's webs, uh, that the club published on their website. He said, I am incredibly proud to have represented Everton for the past 13 years, and my decision to retire has been a difficult one to make. After speaking to my family, I feel now is the right time to end my playing career, but I do so with, great, with many great memories at this proud football club. As someone from the city, Everton means so much to me, and it has been an honor to be part of the club for so long. I would like to thank everyone who has supported me during my time at Everton, especially the fans who have been fantastic with me from the moment I signed. Take care. And thanks again. Lee. So uh, moving on from, from obviously the disappointment of Baines, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, the under 23s team and kind of, you know, looking at some of the youngsters is, you know, I feel like we, we got to look at Anthony Gordon and we're, you know, we're looking at some of these youngsters as we try and, 
shape this team for the future. Um, Pete, you wrote an article about the under-23s and asked the question, are Everton misusing the under-23s team? Talk a little bit about what you wrote about and, and kind of what you're, the point you're trying to make here. Yeah, so I ended up going on a bit of a rant a few days ago. Um, basically, if you look at Everton's under-23s and the majority of players that are getting the majority of games, it's hard to see any of them that have got a future there, really. Like, like someone like Benny Beningame, this Dennis Adderin, like these players, even when we've been desperate for players, aren't getting, basically aren't getting close to a look. And I know uh, Beningame got a couple of games on the bench, but even when we need players, they're not there. And they're already 20, 21. Is it, and these are the guys that are playing week in, week out for the 23s. So my question really was like, when you get to that age, are you going to make improve the, you can develop the necessary skills that you need to get to a Premier League player from the under-23s. And I don't think you can, because I, was, I compared um, the 23s league to about League 2 standard. In term, it's a little bit different in terms of it's probably more technical and a lot less physical. But that's about the level you're looking at. And how often have you ever seen a League 2 player go to the Premier League and do well? I think it hasn't happened often. So these players, if you get into that age, you need to be playing at least in League One, if not the Championship on loan, and that's where you're going to make the improvements necessary. The other point I looked at is that to emphasise how much of a problem this is at Everton, there was of the players owed, um, players aged over 20 that have played more than 10 games in the Premier League two this season, Everton have nine players. And then for context, Arsenal spares of three, Liverpool had two, United had one, City had none. So there's this massive age difference in the players that we're using. And I think we're just holding on to players that probably haven't got a future for far too long in their 23s and kind of blocking the development of younger players. So like when you look at uh, City's under-23s team, it's like 17 and 18-year-olds. They're playing against 20, 21-year-olds for us, and they're still beating us. So I think we're just we're causing problems further down the line. We're, someone like um, Anthony Gordon, for example, he smashed in the 23s this year, at the start of this year. But last season, he played like about 400 minutes or something. So, and this was a player that stood out at every academy age. So why? And then you look who was playing ahead of him, and it was Nathan Broadhead and Josh Bowler. They both had a good season as we won the, you know, the, the division. But they, those lads are like 20, 21. I think Broadhead's 22 now. They, they shouldn't even be playing for the 23s. They should be out on loan like two, three years ago. I know they both were this year, but they should have been doing that the season before and probably the season before that. And it's just stuff, it's stunting the development of everyone and everyone's getting to this point where they're 20, 21 and still playing this team. Yeah. Anything to add to that, guys? Any, you know, your opinions on kind of the U23 Zell, I guess we'll start with you. Yeah, I'm not sure if actually the under-23s winning the title has actually hindered, hindered Everton's academy since. Because I think, I think actually, because <laughs> the first team hasn't won anything, a lot of the fans were actually really excited by the, by the fact we'd won the title. And it seems that I, I'd much rather the entire under-23s, as Pete alluded to, I'd rather much the under-23s are all 18, 19-year-olds. And every summer, it's like a fresh conveyor belt. And anyone older than 19 is out on loan. Or For, for me, what I'd do is, with, for example, like Kieran Dowell, he's had, he's had three or four good seasons in the championship now. Really talented player, but is he more suited to the second tier? Than maybe coming off the bench for Everton, but I think it would be better for Everton 
especially with the with the with financial fair play. I would prefer to see us sell Kirindal for one and a half million and have a buyback clause. I, I, I don't like the fact that we're, we're loaning out players so consistently. Um, I think it's hindering Everton, but it's, it's hindering the player as well because the dowel, you know, it, it's upheaval, isn't it? Moving to a new a new town or city every season, a new you know new teammates. So I think I think we need to. We need to have a rethink as well about how we utilise these these young players because you've got Branthwaite and you've got Gordon, who, who I think personally are, are ready to be in and around the first team on the bench and, and coming on making cameo appearances. But then you've got the other players who are maybe 21, 22, who are that little bit further away. I think we need to be doing better in how we, how we utilise them as an asset for the football club, really. Rather than just keeping them on the on the squad list and loaning them out, so I think we could we could utilise it more and make ourselves some cash because you know we've got so many talented players and if they turn out that they are really the business, you know, let's have first refusal on them and, and have a buyback clause there maybe. I actually wonder with with your point about the younger players, the 21, 22 year olds going out on loan and um, someone like Dal, for example. I kind of wonder if Everton are keeping them in the hope that they have a good season on loan and that'll just skyrocket their value. So I'm thinking they keep them for a bit longer and just kind of, rather than just sell for two million, hopefully Dallas has a great season next season, one best player in the championship, and we can either keep them or we can sell them for 10 million. Yeah, so, of course. Yeah, the, the, yeah, the, the retail, yeah, the value goes up, doesn't it? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it, it just, it does seem different from player to player, really, in how they want to use them. Do I, do either of you, on Gino, obviously it's useful, do I, do you feel like Unsworth, um, you know, plays to win the league rather than develop the team at the under-23s. Yeah, that, that's the sort of point I made. That's what I've seen a few Evertonians thinking is Unsworth trying to trying to win. And that, that that's obviously a great thing for, for mentality. We want winners. But again, if <laughs> if we just have the same team winning football matches, the, the, there's no benefit for Everton or the development of the player. So, as I said earlier, I want to see as, as you know as young as we can, 18, 19, playing regularly, and then unfortunately, you know, if they're not good enough, they're not good enough. That's when that's when you move them on. But yeah, I just think we've we've kept one or two a little too long, and I don't know if that is because they're useful to win under twenty three matches. Yeah, I think um, I think part of the problem I have is like I'm not saying you you are, but or any of either of you are, but I think part of the problem I have with people criticising Unsworth for this is that Unsworth can only do so much with these players like Unsworth can't can't pick the first team he can't promote these players to the first team all he can do is kind of get them as ready as possible and you know playing doing things like playing Umaniat over like Ellis Sims for example is not I get that that's not productive in terms of you know nurturing Ellis Sims um, but I do kind of have a degree of sympathy when for Unsworth and people Say he should be doing this or that instead, but I think you're right. I think I I get the impression I said this last week, but I think certainly nowadays I feel like you have to be the sort of the cut-off age for whether you're going to make it as a Premier League footballer is probably younger than it used to be. Now I think like probably your late teens, if you're not already in and around the first team, you're probably not going to. I feel I think of like Greenwood at United as well, or like Alexander Arnold for example when he came through. And even with us, you know, Branthwaite's coming through and he's 18, Gordon's, what, 18, 19. 
Lewis Gibson's kind of on the fringe. He's, he's just turned 20, I think. So you are kind of looking at that lower bracket and I think the fact that we've still got players like Pennington and we've only just let Garbutt go when he's 27 and, uh, you know, we let Tyus Browning go when he's 24. It's kind of, I guess part of the problem is the contracts that you give these players, but also the fact that you need to, I guess, cut some of them loose earlier. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with the point Pete was making. It doesn't really feel like the under-23s is serving the purpose that it should be for the most part, Everson. And I think when you've got someone like Beningame who I kept banging the drum for because who else have we got in midfield, I guess. When he when he's still not getting a minute since the restart, despite how um how poor Everton's midfield has been, I think that probably says the writing's on the wall for him. And probably for a lot of other players, you know, Dennis Adenarin, we spent a lot of money on and he can't mm-hmm. he can't even get on the bench yet. And yeah, I th- I think Pete's you've hit on a good point in that I think do kind of need to start looking at maybe bringing the, the average age of the under-23s down. Um, I mean, it's like with Branthwaite and Gibson, I think, next season. You've got to decide whether... Is Branthwaite better off being our fourth-choice centre-back or being on loan at a championship or league one club? Because you do sometimes see these players who have a few good games in the first team and then you sort of never hear about them again after they go on a few loans, like Galloway or, or Garbutt. Um but so you have got to be really careful with what they do with with Galloway. Yeah, in, in that in that uh, example, like someone like Galloway or uh, Browning, do you think the the development got stunted by going on loan, or they just got found out by going on loan? Because uh, I think it, I think it got stunted by them going on the wrong loan. I think the club are probably going to do more uh, more due diligence on on where they're being loaned to. Is it? I mean, I think we too, we've talked about this too. Obviously, when you look for a loan, you're looking for for a, pl- a place that's going to fit the style you're trying to play. How much have these guys who have gone on loan and then tried to make the Everton first team? How much have they been affected by the fact that the system is changing every single year? And while they may be going on loan to somebody who fits the system under Marco Silva, six months in, it's you know now it's a completely different system under Carlo Ancelotti. Is that you know, obviously you can't do anything about that, but how much is that affecting the, the growth of these players, you think? Yeah, that, that's the point I was going to make. If, if you take a look at Luke Garbutt in, in particular, he, he made a really good performance against Wolfsburg um, in the Europa League under Roberto Martinez. Um, I think a lot of people probably thought, well, Leighton Baines is the first choice left-back, but we've got a really good deputy here. And I certainly thought that Garbutt would get some cameos. He'd, he'd play in the Cups maybe and... And see how it worked, but you know, it, same with Galloway. Brendan Galloway had a great season under Martinez, and then the chopping and changing of managers, as, as, we, as you said, different managers have different opinions. I mean, Barber was given that chance in Europe, really good performance against the top German side. Ronald Koeman comes in and elects to let Garbutt go out, he's not part of the squad. And we had one left back and three right backs, and he was actively playing Kuka Martina at left-back, when we had a naturally left-sided player. Um, so I, th- I think that I think sliding doors moments are massive for these young players as well. It's, for example, John Joe Kenny. If, if, if we had Sadibi and Coleman for John Joe Kenny's first season coming through as a youngster, his path is blocked. But, but Kenny had, the, had the, that bit of luck that Coleman was our only recognised right-back at one point and, and Kenny got given the nod. 
Whereas I think in other positions, for example, like Ellis Sims, he really going to get ahead of Moise Keane, Richarlison and, and Calvert-Lewin. But if we did sell Moise Keane, for example, back to Italy, then there's an opening. So I think it's, I think probably the, the, the managers that we've gone through has, has played probably a bigger part than, than you'd, you'd realise. Definitely. And I'd say, okay, like, Alex Simmons is a good example there. Like, next season, he should not be playing for the under-23s. He needs to be out on loan. Because, as you say, he's not going to get ahead of any of those three strikers. So he has to play, and he can't be the 23s. It's just not the high enough standard to see if he's going to be good enough. Um, like, but if you're, sorry, Pete, I was going to say, if, you're, if he's banging goals in, in, in the uh, under-23s league, which is obviously, you know, you, you probably rightly compared it to, like, League 2 standard. What's like a good what what level is a good first loan for Ellie Simza? I'd probably be a bit conservative with it and actually say it's better to go to a slightly smaller team and then say go and be the best player in the league. Like maybe go to a, league, a good league one side and say go and dominate it. So if he doesn't dominate it, he'd probably struggle with yeah. the championship anyway. That's what that's what Lewis Gibson's just done with Fleetwood, isn't it? Exactly, he has yeah. a really yeah, good yeah. run. And all of a sudden it gives the players confidence as well. Yeah. We, we, we loaned Browning and Galloway to Sunderland, who were a complete mess in the championship. It's too much pressure. It's, yeah, there's too much going on. It's like, what is it, like a 50,000-seater of really disgruntled fans that just suffered relegation. And if you make a mistake in your first five minutes of your debut, all of a sudden, the pressure is so much greater at, at, at Sunderland compared to a Fleetwood. You know, Fleetwood are at the right end of the table. And, but there's that... There's, but there's not as much pressure, so I think, as you, as you alluded to before, that you've got to do your due, you know due diligence on on which clubs are sending the players to. And I think I think Pete's right. A, a good solid league league one team on an upward trajectory would be perfect for for Ellis Sims. It really would. I think yeah. if we we're going to end up going down, I think that'd be the perfect place for him because there's already a bit of a blue influence there, and you know our our players tend to play when they go there. So I think if we're going to down there, that's the place you've got to go next year. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, especially for those strikers, too. Just seeing the ball go in the net is a huge confidence boost in general. So, you know, you don't want to put him in a too challenging of a situation where he's either not getting the time or he's finding himself in a, in a situation that's a little bit above his level right now where he's not putting the ball in the net and then you never know what it can do to his confidence and stuff like that. Um, but let's move on to uh, your article, L, that I believe is on, it's on tofiweb.com, correct? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, it's called Everton Flux, but it stays the same. You want to just uh, go into a little bit detail of what it's about, and we can get a little discussion about it. Yeah, so it's it's ever since Farid Mashiri came in, and I'd say maybe into Martinez's last season. There's always Everton are always unsettled, there's always something a change coming, but in actual fact, everything is the same. <laughs> uh, the amount of players that we need to get rid of, the poor results, the derby defeats, the Lack of away wins at the big sides. You know, we all know the we all know the script, and we all we all know the narrative of the last five years. And I I just felt like I wrote a piece just to just to get that feeling across of how it really does feel like Groundhog Day. Now every season has followed a similar path. Whoever we sign in the summer, there's always a few duds. <laughs> it's always sort of September October when the hope is almost like it's dampened. It's we're worried and then by January or February the season's over and it just goes again and again and I just feel like we probably haven't learned our lessons with recruitment so I think 
hopefully we need Ancelotti for three, four, five years now. We need some continuity because in my early years as a fan, we were we were fighting relegation. We had Kendall, we had Smith, but then eleven years of David Moyes, just it just sorted us right out. It just gave that manager enough time, and you know maybe Cumin Silver weren't the right managers, but. If you, you need that time now and with, with a manager like Ancelotti, you know, we will give it to him. I think every fan is a million percent behind him. Um but yeah, it was it was just that feeling of everything's always up in the air, but the results are just they never change. You know, I feel like that is the kind of the Everton way it feels like for the past few years that it is it has been the same. It feels like we've been talking about needing that midfielder you know, for the past however many years or, or needing replacements or, you know, or backup, you know, right back or whatnot. Um, I think the thing with Ancelotti is, you know, I think we will give him the time. It's whether he – I mean, I think he's bought in, but, you know, if things keep going the way they are and he doesn't get the, um, the help he thinks he's going to get from maybe the board or stuff like that, then it's how long will he want to stay here. And, you know, especially a top manager like that who – probably has his pick of, you know, the, the, the leagues, if a big job comes opening, um, you know, you just got to hope that it, it seems like we're behind him. And it seems like he believes that we're behind him financially as well. Obviously with COVID-19 and everything that's been happening, it's a little bit different, but um, it'll be interesting to see how he utilizes this off season. And, and I think this will be a big, uh, you know, a big uh, eye opener into what we're expecting. I do, I do feel that, that the, the recruitment side of things has really let the managers down. Mm-hmm. So I accept that the managers in question, Silver and Koeman, they've made things 10 times worse for themselves after the event. But for example, like Koeman needed that target man. We were, you know, we tried to get Olivia Giroud. I was out the club hands that he didn't come. But there's players there. And if the manager identifies a player that he needs for his system, and then we don't, we don't sign that player. You know, I think some managers panic a bit. I mean, I remember that that some of that first game, Koeman picking Calvin Lewin as right wing back. <laughs> I don't know what went wrong. It was sort of like, right, I haven't got my players. I'm going to have to like put all these square pegs in round holes now just to try and because I think I think this Everton squad for about five or six years now, we're playing players to negate the weaknesses of others. As we said, Andre Gomez needs that tough tackle next to him. But really, we need a midfielder who can get about the pitch and tackle. Rather than yeah. just getting players to help others, we need players that are the complete package. So, yeah, I completely agree that with Ancelotti, we've got to get him everything that he needs to feel that he can be successful. Because otherwise, it, it could all unravel very quickly again. And I think that one of the other things too, and, and Matthew and Pete, please chime in, um, you mentioned the target man. You know, when we when we lost Lukaku, it felt like we we kept putting that saga off and off, and then it gets to the last day of the transfer window when we sell him, and we don't have a replacement for him. And it feels like that's happened more than once in certain situations. Um, and that's something that can't happen either because Ancelotti needs to work with these players. And you know, we buy Alex Awobi on the last day of the season, not because maybe he was the best player for us to, or on the last day of the transfer window, not because he was the best player to buy, but because we needed to fill a hole. And, you know, we had put the saga on for too long. I think also maybe getting business done a little bit earlier would be, you know, maybe changing the philosophy that way. Obviously, you know, you never know how difficult it could be, but I'm sure that probably also plays into it too. But Matthew and, and Pete, you know, 
chime in here. What, what are you guys thinking about, you know, everything and, you know, the, I feel like constant problems we deal with and talk about every week. Yeah. I just, I feel like um, during lockdown, I, f- I felt like, you know, got to the point where I did start missing watching Everton just because of the, of the sort of routine of it all. Um, and because, you know, we had shown real improvement, I think, before lockdown under Ancelotti. And then as soon as he comes back, I just remind you how, how much, how arduous it is to sit through Everton games and, and watch the same mistakes come back game after game. And to the point where I was actually looking forward to next season because I thought there was enough there for Ancelotti to, to work with on the pitch in part and then also you know the resources that he should be allowed to, which he should be given. But the season ends yesterday and I don't really feel... I just, I just feel, uh, I guess, wary of the same thing happening again, which I guess is kind of the point that El was uh, hitting home about in his article, is that we keep spinning the wheel on all these players and all these managers, and yet it does feel like the same dreary season keeps coming back to bite us on the arse. And I don't... I You know, I hope next season is different. I think it'll be harder because of, you know, the effect that the pandemic's had on and will have on the market and will have on, you know, preparations for the season as well. But um, I also, I don't really know where Mashiri goes from this. If he, fa- if he fails with this one, because Ancelotti is obviously his man, you know, where does he go from there? He keeps putting money in to no avail. And even if a manager is as world-class as Ancelotti can't sort it out of him, what does Mashiri put his faith in after that? Um, so yeah, I think Ancelotti in that regard has kind of got to be the one who breaks the breaks the vicious cycle thing. Um, whether he can or not is kind of it's whether Everton breaks him or whether he breaks Everton. I guess. Pete, anything to add to that? Yeah, well, I was reading Nell's piece before, and I think we've actually been going the game for about the same amount of time. Because my first match was '96 as well, so literally one year after our last trophy. And I remember I wrote a message to some of my friends a while ago to try and describe what it's like to be an Everton fan. And basically for 25 years, or nearly 25 years, nothing's happened at all. Like, we almost got relegated a couple of times. We got in the top four once, but then we got knocked out of the Champions League straight away. We got Rooney, that was a bit of a highlight. And of what was maybe one final and maybe the first March in the season. But, like, nothing actually happened in that period. They were the highlights and nothing happened. It's just... It's um, it's just the quarter of a century of hoping and being let down. Constantly. Yeah, That's all it is. Yeah, because it's never completely terrible. It's never us going down to League One. It's never getting relegated. It's nothing, never that bad. But it's just... They, they just give you that little bite-sized chunk of hope. And that's what kind of keeps you on the hook. And at the moment, I think we're all kind of like, oh, God, Everton. But in the past seven weeks, we'll probably sign a couple of good players and be like, hey, you know what? We've got a good team this year. This could be the year. And then we'll play about 10 games. There'll be a couple of good games to start the season. And then we'll be just back in this position. It's, 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 yeah. I honestly feel like the force of Everton, that, you know, the pessimism that we feel. Yeah. I'm sort of looking at Ancelotti as like this, this master tactician. And I, I'm wondering... Is he strong enough? Has he got the power to outdo Everton that? Because I don't think anyone has. <laughs> I don't think anyone has. I think we're all cursed for eternity. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, Pete, you, you put it well, and it's like Everton's playing – Everton's like playing a round of golf where, you know, it's never really good, but there's that one shot that you hit from like 150 yards out, yeah. it lands next to the pin, and you're like, oh, I can do it every time now. And then you're like, oh, I'm going to come back and I'm going to play another round. It's, it's just – it's over and over again. And they say, you know, definition of insanity is what? You know, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And, like we're all going insane watching Everton, but hopefully our game, our game was on Sky Sports Golf yesterday, Gene. <laughs> oh, oh, yes, yeah, I, didn't even, I didn't, didn't even think about it. I think it's on, oh, it was on CNBC over here or something like that. But uh, but yeah, there you go. Perfect analogy for for Everton is us being on Sky Sports Golf. But uh, golf's actually uh, a bit more entertaining than watching Everton as well. <laughs> I just saw I just saw those people on Twitter yesterday asking Sky to put a golf on halfway through the. <laughs> Uh, Everton, Everton, Everton. Well, guys, uh, let's transition now, kind of in the you know finishing this up and wrapping this this discussion up, wrapping this season up. Some final thoughts on, on the season and looking ahead. I, obviously, Everton fi- finished the season in twelfth, their lowest finish since they finished seventeenth in uh, in oh three and oh four. Um, L, we'll start with you, and we'll kind of go around the table here. The highlights and lowlights of the season, your thoughts on the season as a whole, and, and, and what's your hopes for next year? Yeah, so the highlights for me first were sort of the, the players that I've grown up with. So Leighton Baines scoring his, his screamer against Leicester. Now that he's retired, it's, I'm really pleased that I was there to see his, his last brilliant goal for Everton. And for me as well, my first game was 96, as I said, and Duncan Ferguson is my... Like after imagine Everton and to see us win with a real robust Everton performance, I'm not over exaggerating. It's probably the best game I've ever been to, for me on a personal level, for what it for what it meant to me, and just for having not seen what Everton is about for a few years now, I felt like we I saw the old Everton, the one when we were pushing for Europe, the one when we were. A really solid unit, um, sort of 07 to 2010. It was that style of football, really, on the front foot. So that, for me, during such a dour spell, it was just good to see the old Everton and to see, you know, Duncan Ferguson, his love for Everton. I, I went to Old Trafford for the draw as well and to see him singing Everton, Everton with the fans at the end. It's just, just brilliant. Um, and then, yeah, a few weeks after that, I went to Newcastle for Antoine's first away win. So, you know, I have a little moan, but there are some good moments, like we say. <laughs> yeah, I would, um, I would, I was, I say, I would pick out the uh, Chelsea and the United games as well. I think, I mean, I was, at, I was at the United game as well. And, and what's, what was so special, I think, about the United game was we didn't, we didn't win. And yet, the amount of fans who stayed behind afterwards to sing Duncan Ferguson's name for about five, ten minutes afterwards. And, and, it felt like, I mean, I was I was kind of glad in a way Ferguson didn't get the job because I think we couldn't have gone on playing like that without, you know, having a shed load more injuries. But um, it felt like just a really special, like in isolation anyway, like a really special moment. Um, and yeah, the Newcastle game as well was kind of another another one like that for Ancelotti, I think, at the start. Um, other highlights for me, I guess, would just be that, you know, I think Richarlison's improved um, as a striker, especially. Um, I think Dominic Calvert-Lewin and Mason Holgate are probably the two most improved players 
Um, and I'd probably save Everton a lot of money because you'd imagine Everton would be in the market for another centre-back, another striker, had they not kicked on as much as they have done. Um, and then apart from that, I guess just Ancelotti's arrival. And, um, and I guess we've not seen much of them, but I think the, uh, the introduction of players like Branthwaite and Gordon, I guess, gives you a bit more, gives Ancelotti a bit more food for thought for next year and a few more positive signs, I think, in what has pretty much been a dreadful season otherwise. Pete? I think it's more of the same, really, that Chelsea game under Ferguson. It was just a relief after seeing Everton repeat the same mistakes over and over again. It's with the fingers of Ferguson, I think it's completely, it's not sustainable at all. It's just pure high adrenaline football, but it was nice to see they just cared. You know, they looked like they wanted it. They really wanted it. And I think we've kind of gone, we, start, we, did all, we started all right under Ancelotti. We seem to have gone back to the bad habits of just this pedestrian football again, but that was just a little moment of showing what could be. Or not, not, it wasn't the end result, but certainly if you have that mentality going into games, it's definitely what we could be. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, same for me, guys. I mean, Chelsea game, getting up at 7.30 a.m. over here, you know, it's, it was nice to be able to, you know, after so much, um, you know, I, I feel like so much turmoil over the, the, the course of the season at that point, just seeing that performance, you know, I was energized the rest of the day just watching the guys, you know, run around the pitch and, and, and really putting in, like you said, El, like a real Everton performance. And then, you know, the Leighton Baines screamer, you know, I wasn't able to be at the game, obviously, but I was screaming in my house to the point where my dogs were not happy with me. They, they started barking. Um, but, you know, it's, there are those moments and then, you know, they, they happen every so often. It's just, you hope they happen more, more, more than occasionally during over the course of a season. But as we look ahead now, um, Matthew, we'll start with you. Your, your, what you're looking forward to, what you're looking for as we head in the 2020-2021 season. I'm just looking forward to being able to go, I think, again, to be honest, because I've kind of more than, I mean, sounds kind of counterintuitive considering how awful Everton or have been to watch and how painful and, and what a horrible experience it can be, but you know, as long as it's safe to do so, I think I'm just looking forward to being back at the game. And um, don't know about Alan and Pete, but you know, I miss as much things like uh, you know going to the Winslow or going to the, going to the Blue Dragon or things like that as well before the game. Um, so just kind of that old routine. I think getting back into that routine will be nice uh, when we can do. Um, in terms of Everton as a team, I think I don't know how you judge next season because I feel like. Every year, there's there's one team that you expect to to do a lot better than they actually end up doing, um, and you know it's probably unrealistic to expect them to jump from twelve to six. But then when you've got a manager like Ancelotti, um, obviously, eventually Everton will want to be in that top six at least with him. So um, I think if we finished at least seventh next year, I think we'd have to have a really good season and go on a cup run. Um, and then I think just as well, just one of my hopes as well is that I just think there's a more kind of sense of unity about the club, you know, not just not just among the fans, because I don't think, I think we kind of get painted as, a, as kind of a, a very difficult to please fan base. And maybe, maybe we are, but we haven't had anything to really shout about for ages now. And I think, I think back to Martinez's first season as kind of 
so much harmony around the club and among the fans, and I don't think we've really, um, you know, rediscovered that since then. Um, so I just kind of like a return. You don't have to be like amazing to watch every week, or you know, playing amazing football every week, um, or you know, even, even winning every week to do that. I just think um, as long as the club feels a much more united place. Um, rather than all these different sort of factions around the club, which feel like they're working against each other at times, I think that's that's improvement, and it's that would be improvement in itself for me. I think. L. Yeah, I think I think back to the the back end of Marco Silva's first season, we we sort of stuttered along, but then we had some really really good performances, a good some good wins against some big clubs. Um, I'd like that again, but at the right time of the season, I'd love us to really to really go on a run to. I just, I just want to be in it till May. I just want to have football that Everton have to win in May. I don't want to be the sideshow to everybody else's party or, you know, the, the opposition when a team's fighting relegation. I want us to be to be fighting on all cylinders. And to be honest, I know the League Cup is the, the least desirable domestic trophy. If I was Ancelotti and I was the board, I'd be saying go all out for it. Because if, if we can just win that first trophy... It's massive because there is a really bad mentality at Everton, and it's it's not anybody's fault. It's just we've been without a trophy for 25 years. It's it's our longest barren run, and we've just got to find a way to unlock it, and then hopefully the sky be the limit then because the shackles are off. No longer, you know, the, that negative feeling that you get that you know me and P could finally say that we've been going since '96. We finally had our you know our day in the sun, our big day out. For me, I think you've got to go all out for the cups, but you know, saying that you've got to go all out for the league, you've just, we've just got to go full pelt for every game and just try and be in the season for as long as we can because it's too long now. The season's over halfway through, and it's just not fun for the fans. I, I just want to enjoy going to the match again. And like we said about the Ferguson game, just seeing that the players care that, that's the big thing for me because this side now has probably got more ability than a few, you know, past sides, especially the ones that I grew up watching. But the ones I watched, I liked the team a lot more because they cared what, what, what they lacked in ability they made up for in, in heart and fighting application. So, yeah, I, do, I just want to have an Everton side that I like again <laughs> and enjoy going to the match. Beat? Yeah, kind of similar, really. I guess, I think for the last few years, you could probably say, on paper at least, we are the seventh best team in the league even if we're not finishing seventh. And there's probably a case to be made now that Wolves and Leicester have leapfrogged us, which is sad. But um, they've both got Europa League to deal with next year. And that's not normally a great thing for your league form. So we've got to use that to our advantage. We're not going to have this massive fixture pileup that other teams are going to have, especially when the season's a little bit shorter. That could get like really out of hand for them. Um, I don't think we're actually... In terms of if you look at a squad, I think we've got a decent core of players there. Like, if you look at Hallgate, Cabot Lewin, Dean, Anthony Gordon, Richarlison, I think there's good young players there. I think we're two or that kind of classic two or three players more and we could kick on. But it's not a case of wholesale changes needed. Um, and the other risk, I, I, I think there's also a little bit of pressure with that as well in terms of if we don't kick on this year, I think we will lose someone like Richarlison, maybe a couple of the others. And then we're back to square one of rebuilding. Because like a few years ago, we had like Barkley, Lukaku, maybe De La Feu, Stones, that youthful core that we're quite hopeful about. And 
if you don't do anything, they just disappear. They're going to go to bigger clubs. So we have to really kick on at least win a cup, or not at least win a cup, but at least get close to winning a cup, at least get in the Europa League. I think that's got to be where we're striving to get to. But if we come eighth, ninth next year, it's, you know, it's the same thing again, really. I know we finished 12th, it'll be an improvement, but we have to make some kind of statement next year, I think. Yeah. No, I agree. I think uh, my sentiments have been shared already by everybody. Um, you know, I think, I think, Al, you're right. Winning any cup would be huge for just the mentality around the club. So, I mean, even if it is the League Cup, I think plenty of fans would just be happy to just hoist the trophy in general. Um, and then, uh, yeah, with, uh, with everything else, it's got to be, you know, we got to be competing. We got to be in, I think we have to be in Europa, I think, at, at the least. And, you know, just give the players that are here the solid core that we have a reason to stay and a reason to believe that where this is on the up and up rather than we're staying, you know, moving sideways and just kind of saying, saying uh, level, I guess. Well, guys, thanks so much for joining me. L, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it. And we hope to have you on again, again sometime soon, man. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Uh, Pete and Matthew, as always, thank you so much. Everybody out there, thank you for listening, and we will talk to you guys next time.